Today, we will be looking at a bunch of questions. This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 16. Welcome. So yeah, this has definitely become not a weekly podcast, but I'm enjoying it, doing it every few weeks. I love the questions you guys submit. In fact, uh, there are more questions that I'm able to get to with the, the kind of detail I've been answering questions. And so what I wanted to do today is just go through, uh, you know, in the next hour, see how many questions I can get through. I won't be able to provide tons of depth of thought, but hopefully I can give um, some some helpful thinking, some biblical bases for continued processing. Um, hopefully this is a blessing to you. So let's dive in. The first question I received a little while ago was, why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? Um, so Enoch was, for those of you who are, I, I suppose most of you will know who Enoch is. Enoch was, I believe, seven generations after Adam in the Genesis genealogy. Um, Enoch lived for many hundreds of years, and I think if memory serves, he fathered Methuselah, the oldest person named in the book of Genesis. And there's a reference to Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, and we read that Enoch walked with God and was no more. And similarly to the prophet Elijah, who was taken up into uh, the heavens on a chariot, it seems that uh, Enoch didn't die the way pretty much all of us will, but was somehow just kind of taken up into the presence of God. It's not detail, detailed, but certainly an inspiring and just kind of, I think, a helpful challenge to us recognizing that Jesus has made a way that we might have relationship with God. Uh, Jesus didn't come and die on the cross just that we'd go to church on Sunday. That, that's a helpful practice, but so that we could have relationship with the Lord. And Enoch really, by faith, had a relationship with God. And may we have relationship with God. Um, now, there were sayings of Enoch that seemed to be passed down for generations, even through the flood. And I think most scholars would date the book of First Enoch, uh, which is, uh, it, it exists in full, but it's not in the original language it was written in. I think it's like in Ethiopian or something. Um but I think most scholars would say it was written in like the, the 7th, 6th or 7th century BC, somewhere in that. So a few hundred years before Jesus, several hundred years. And uh, it's actually, there's one line that is quoted in the book of Jude. Let me look up real quick. Does it actually even say? No, I don't think it says. Yes, it does. Um, Jude 14. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Um, and so there's this reference to, to Enoch and even uh, partly quoting a, a phrase from the book of First Enoch. So some people have asked, why is Enoch not in the Bible? And uh, I don't have the definitive answer for you. Uh, a couple of thoughts that might be helpful. One is that the New Testament that we use, the New Testament we use was written entirely in the first century AD. It was written by apostles or people who walked with the apostles. Examples of apostles would be Matthew and uh, Matthew and John and the Pauline epistles and the, uh, you know, the letters by James and Peter and so these are apostles or people that walked with them, like Mark, who 
walked closely with Paul and used Peter very much as a, a heavy source in his gospel or Luke, um, who similarly interviewed many of the apostles and likely traveled with Paul for a while. So that's kind of the New Testament uh, that we have, and, and that was written in the first century and really by the end of the first century. So this is like a few years after the book of Revelation was written. We have letters by Clement of Rome, who was quoting Hebrews and 1 Corinthians and another letter for sure. I don't remember which one, maybe Galatians, uh, likely quoting several other New Testament books. Over the next century, you have Justin, Justin Martyr and, and Polycop and Irenaeus and uh, Tatian and a, a number of church fathers who are quoting these letters and even producing a list of about 22 of the 27 books uh, very explicitly. And then the canon was kind of formalized in the 300s, in the fourth century, but it was being used and passed around and quoted as scripture from the get-go. In fact, if you look within the New Testament itself, uh, Peter references the writing of the apostles in parallel with the prophets of the Old Testament, and he references Paul's work uh, in that context as scripture. And, and there's some other things too, but that's the New Testament. You're asking about Enoch, which would be several hundred years before Jesus. This is around when some of the prophets were writing, like um, Daniel or, or Jeremiah. Um, the Old Testament canon, I don't know quite as much about as I do the New Testament. And part of why is because in many ways, uh, once you accept, embrace Jesus as Messiah, as the risen Christ, and you recognize the, the New Testament as the writing of, of the apostles or those who walked with them, testifying of, of who Jesus was and his ministry, um, pretty quickly, the Old Testament kind of goes along for the ride because the Old Testament that we have is, well, it was the scripture of the day. In 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, it's very directly in their mind, they were talking about the book of Isaiah and the book of Deuteronomy and Genesis, etc. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament extensively. Um, the Old Testament that we have was essentially, it's, it's called the Tanakh, it's the Jewish Bible, and it's what the Pharisees used. There is some debate as to whether Pharisees and Sadducees had different canons. Did the Sadducees reject some of the Old Testament books? Is that what led to um, the debate between the Pharisees and Sadducees as to whether there really was a resurrection of the dead in the end? Um, the resurrection of the dead, I don't know if is is explicitly taught in the Torah. So some suspect maybe the Sadducees only use the Torah, which is the first five books, but the it they did quote from other books. And in fact, it was likely that when Herod was asking about why the Magi were looking for a king and consulted, it was likely Pharisees who looked to scripture and said, oh, there's a prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. And that's in Isaiah, I think. So like that one so the Sadducees seem to look to much of what we think of as the Old Testament as scripture, possibly all. There's there's debates, but certainly the Old Testament that we have was the Pharisees' Bible. And it was the Tanakh. It was the Jewish Bible of the time. It's what Jesus used and and other others in the early church. And so it kind of goes along for the ride. And I don't know the answer as to why first Enoch is not included. I do know that first Enoch includes some um Helpful ideas. I've read parts, but not the whole thing. It also includes some ideas about like the watch, watchers, watchmen, you know, like around the time of the flood. That's kind of, hmm, I, I don't know exactly. It, it's a little odd and maybe a little fantastic. And um, well, it's not in the Bible. And so I don't, uh, you can read it as some ancient literature that might have some useful truths, but uh, it wasn't included by the Jews of that day. 
Uh, it wasn't part of the scripture that Jesus was quoting and looking to. Um, it was quoted by Jude, but there are other extra biblical sources that are quoted in the Bible. And just because uh, an author of scripture quotes a line from someone else doesn't make everything that someone else wrote scripture. Um, similarly, I would even say the biblical authors, uh, just because Isaiah, you know, prophesied and wrote a book of 66 chapters doesn't mean everything Isaiah ever did was like inspired by the Lord. He was fallible. He made mistakes. The same thing with the apostle Paul or the apostle Peter, etc. Um, so yeah, that would be my, wow, way too long. I have a hard time answering things quickly. Why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? Well, because it wasn't in the Jewish Bible that Jesus and Paul and all of them used, and I'm, I'm going with the, what they look to as the Old Testament. Next question, is yoga spiritually safe to practice? Good question. So I have, I, I have some concerns about yoga. Um, I've, I've practiced yoga myself, but very much with like a focus on just doing some stretches and, and simple exercises, and I think that can be fine. But I have observed over the decade that people can very easily get involved with yoga. And um, when I think of yoga, I tend to just think of some stretches and basic exercises. Um, but I do know I purposely avoid the aspects of, of weird pantheistic spiritualism and meditation and really some things that could, just to be straight up, could be really demonic and I, I very clearly avoid that. So it hasn't been part of, so when I think of yoga at first, I'm like, oh, that's yeah, fine. Um, but what I've noticed over the years is not everyone might be careful to make those kinds of distinctions and avoid some of the, uh, the, the really the, the pagan aspects of what sometimes people think of when they think of yoga. And I've seen people get involved with yoga and it not be edifying for their faith. And maybe even through that, I wouldn't blame yoga, but it seems to in several anecdotes for several people that I've lived life with, it seems like yoga was part of their walking away from Jesus story. And so I am cautious and, and I would recommend for you if, 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 uh, if you are at all involved with yoga and feel like this is not honoring the Lord, this isn't encouraging my soul, like run. Now, if you're doing yoga and you're like, Hey, man, I feel like my hamstrings are loose and my spine is elongated and relaxed. I'm like, amen. Cool. Uh, I mean, at some level, it's just some physical poses that can strengthen and stretch. Uh, but if at any level you feel like there's some sort of spiritual element, I think that might differ depending on what you're practicing exactly with the yoga and also your background. You know, some of you listeners, maybe you come from a bit of a new agey or very open to Eastern ideas background. And you're like anything, just even some of these words, just kind of stirring up something in you, avoid it. So I'm not going to condemn yoga. Uh, like I said, I, I, I rarely will like throw on a CD, but it's not uncommon for me to do a, a little, you know, sun salutation, just warm up and stretch my hamstrings or whatever. So I'm not opposed to the the physical stretching and, and exercising aspects, but I would caution great care and I'll leave it there. Ooh, one, one thought on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul is discussing food offered to idols. 
And he gives in first Corinthians eight through 10, there's a a lot covered and I highly recommend the whole passage actually on this conversation, but specifically at the beginning of 10, he gives a word of caution to the person who says like, oh, I'm good. So if you're listening to this and you do yoga and you're like, oh, I'm good. I would say you might be fine, but be careful. That's where the apostle Paul holds up the example of the Israelites who repeatedly fell into sin. And he says to the Corinthians, take heed lest you fall. And so I would just caution all of us, regardless of what you're involved in, when you feel like, okay, I'm good, everything I'm doing is like healthy and balanced, it may well be, I'm not saying it's not, but take heed lest you fall. Let's, let's be careful, let's be sensitive uh, to, to the direction of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen. Okay, next question. Not totally sure if I'm your intended audience, but since I listened to it, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on what you mean by the church being a prophetic voice. I'm not entirely sure if I'm charismatic or where I stand with prophecy in the modern day, so could you possibly translate that into something I can process? Great question. Um, I think that was from the episode on just think considering the election. So that would be one or two back. I can't actually remember what my last uh, podcast episode was about. But uh, I, I, I talked about certainly part of what I think of when I'm thinking about politics is I want to make sure... I'm salt and light, that I'm speaking truth to culture. And I am charismatic, but when I say prophetic voice in this context, I'm not really speaking about the prophetic, like the gift of prophecy that we see outlined as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12. And we see practiced repeatedly throughout scripture. I'm speaking to that aspect of the office of old the the old testament prophets where part of their job was to speak truth to culture and truth to power you know to to um certainly it was a word of knowledge that nathan came to david after david sinned with bathsheba and and conspired to murder uh her husband it was, it was there was a word of knowledge there was certainly like holy spirit ministry at work there but part of the the purpose of that was Nathan had a place as prophet to speak truth into David. And you see that repeatedly with, with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And um, that is that role still exists for us as the church. And, and some of that will very directly be related to like the gift of the spirit of, of prophecy. But part of that prophetic role is just us speaking truth, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I want to be that salt and that light. And so when I say I have a prophetic voice, I mean a, a voice that doesn't just go along with, with the, the winds of culture, a voice that doesn't get overly dulled by compromise. Politics requires compromise. I'm not opposed to compromising, but I don't want to compromise so much. It's like, what do you stand for? Uh, if you're familiar with the show Hamilton... Aaron Burr was like the ultimate political, just kind of, you know, chameleon and would compromise and switch positions just to try to get forward politically. And I'm like, ugh, that is not the Lord's call for the church. Um, I'm fine uh, making compromises to move things forward, but man, I will not compromise if it means we lose our saltiness, if it means we lose, if it means our light goes out. I want to be... Man, I would rather lose every political battle and still have the, the clarion message 
that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am chief. I want that to be a clear message. That I, I, I would la- rather lose every political than every political issue. I, I w- would prefer to lose on all of those than to, to lose the prophetic voice of the church that states, we have a sin problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus came to bring salvation. And so that's what I mean by prophetic voice. Hopefully that helps. Um, you continue, dear listener, semi-unrelated follow-up, no obligation to answer. And I promise I'm not trying to to argue. I'm legitimately in a learning period. Uh, Did you come to your charismatic convictions based on the context of where you grew up? Or is it something you studied later? If you did study it, do you have any resources that assisted you in that journey? Great question. Okay, so as I noted earlier, I am charismatic. That wasn't necessarily directly involved in a question about prophetic voice. But yeah, I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking today. Um, I've seen the Lord speak. I've seen prayers answered. I've seen words of knowledge and words of wisdom. And I want to see more. I'm hungry to see more. And in fact, I would say I have seen gifts of the Holy Spirit in action a number of times over the years. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm quite confident the Lord has more for us. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul almost bookends that section and he, he, he exhorts us towards a, with a, in a posture towards spiritual gifts. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's verse one. And then the the very, let's see, the second to last verse in the chapter. So then my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. There is a posture and my posture, Lord, help us have a, a humble and biblical posture that says we are, are hungry for uh, just the move of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our families and our churches and our communities. We need the Lord. Okay. So did you come to your charismatic convictions based on just where you grew up or something you studied later? I would say certainly a combination. I grew up in a charismatic context. Um, you know, I remember as a, as a child, um, praying for, for the Lord to, uh, to, just to encounter me and for me to, to prophesy and speak in tongues. And I prayed for people to be healed. And um, yeah, so, so definitely that was part of what I grew up in. And I consider that a great blessing. Um, I will say my natural personality tends to be uh, somewhat analytical. So I want to understand like the mechanics of things and how uh, I'm also very much interested in genuine. Um, so so I, I do, I, I, I quickly wonder, mm, are there excesses in the charismatic movement that might encourage people, like even not intentionally? I think you can unintentionally uh, fake things and, and almost think it's real. And, and so definitely there's a, uh, there, there is a, as I, as I grew older, I certainly grew up in a context that was encouraging these things in a healthy way, but I also had a, a, maybe healthy, maybe at times actually a little too skeptical, if I'm being honest. And, and there are times where I feel like the Lord spoke to me. Actually, there was this one moment uh, a number of years ago. There was a, a service and um, it's just some ministry going on, just corporate worship and prayer ministry happening one to another. And there was a fellow, people were receiving prayer and um, just, you know, I was kind of observing and to be honest, I was observing kind of like, is that real? Is somebody faking it? Or like, is, this, is God really like doing that? And just thinking through, I wasn't, I don't think I was being mean. I, I think I was genuinely being somewhat 
scientific in my observation. But in the middle of that, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in, I just felt like the Lord spoke to me, directly to me, clear as day, and said, are you just going to sit there analyzing what's going on around you and miss out on what I have for you? Or are you going to just yield yourself to me in this moment and receive what I have for you? And I was, I was convicted, not that necessarily what I was doing had been like rebellious or hateful, but I was just like, wow, I certainly, I want to think well, and that's part of what this podcast is about, but man, I don't want to miss Jesus. I don't want to miss the move of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there has been over the years, a, just a, a very personal me as I've encountered the Lord. And as I've read scripture, you, you ask what resources maybe I, I look to, because definitely I, I, I grew up in the context, but it's also something I have studied very much so as I've again, was kind of analyzing, like, is this real? Is Are people faking this? Is this what the Lord's doing? How does this work? You know, the mechanics of speaking in tongues is certainly something I've thought about. And I don't think that's bad in and of itself. As long as it's submitted to the Lord, and it's not something that takes the place of actually seeking the Lord and experiencing the move of the Lord, which is what I was convicted of in that moment. Um, in terms of resources, I haven't done a great job. I, I have read some charismatic literature on none that I'm like, often I'm like, I'm encouraged and strengthened by, but also I have some, some sort of reservation. And so I'm hesitant to just recommend things. In fact, the stuff that I've read repeatedly, that's been challenging, instructive, encouraging, convicting, like it's scripture. And I don't mean to say that as kind of like a a lazy answer, but honestly, when I'm feeling like, man, I just need to be, be stirred in a pursuit of the gifts, or I need to be reminded of the need for order and um, order and health in the use and expression of the gifts, I read the book of Acts. I read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I read Ephesians 5. I read John 14 and John 16. I read 1 Timothy 4. Like these passages man, they stir, they instruct, they, they provoke, they also bring care. You know, there, there's a, a need, first, first Thessalonians 5, test all things, hold on to what is good, uh, but don't despise the prophecies or, or, you know, keep prohibit people from speaking in tongues. There's great teaching that, I feel like the Bible is pretty clear on this one. Um, I could go on for a while, but for now, for the sake of moving through a bunch of questions, let's move on. Question, I just listened through your episode on metacognition and race and racism and their definitions. I'm wondering if you'll ever do an episode on critical theory and the biblical response to it. Hmm. Maybe yes. Not today. I'm certainly familiar with critical theory. Uh, I've been vaguely familiar with it for years, but I kind of, you know, did some study over the past several months as uh, critical theory has just uh, taken front stage uh, in the American conversation this past summer. Um, I, you know, critical theory is, it's from the Frankfurt School, a number of, it was actually Jewish Marxists in like the 1930s in Germany. They ended up going to Columbia and New York City, then out to maybe San Francisco during World War II, and then back to Frankfurt after the war. 
But they were an intellectual group, uh, economists and then sociologists. And in, in some ways, the, the very simplistic version is they took that Marxist idea of that the conflict theory, that there's going to be conflict between the, the haves and the have-nots, between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Uh, they, they took that, that notion, by the way, I think I just reversed haves and have-nots and bourgeoisie and proletariat uh, to correct, make it them parallel in their order. But they took that idea of conflict theory economically in, in terms of like economic classes, people with property or capital and those who didn't have it, and they started applying it to all manner of social relationships. And um, one of the downfalls of communism was, although there's some truth to the observation that there is conflict between humans, Marx, Marx and Engels wanted to, to stoke that conflict, to, to provoke a revolution. The Communist Manifesto was not, hmm, there seems to be conflict amongst humanity, and there's enmity in the heart of man towards one another, and it seems like disparity in wealth sometimes is related to this. It wasn't simply an observation of true facts, and, and long story short, sin, um, but they were actually provoking or stoking. They were calling the workers of the world to, to unite in revolution to overthrow uh, these, this oppressive class. And the same thing with the Frankfurt School. Rather than recognizing that, yeah, sometimes in these various categories, there might be a sense of uh, conflict between groups. And rather than saying, like, hey, let's pursue unity. Let, let's pursue peace and unity and, and health in our communities. It's like, let's stoke this to like destroy the oppressor. It just was like, it's a full on in, embrace of the reality and then like uh, stoking it. And, and really at some level, ends justify the means. The, the, the end of destroying this oppressive class really allows for, well, take the context of racism um, in an effort to uh, undo the, re the fact that in the past couple hundred years in America, there's been tons of racism, and clearly, on the whole, there has been white Americans who have oppressed, whether it was through slavery itself, which is just, you can't even put into words the, 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 the scale and breadth and depth of that um, injustice, whether it was that itself or, you know, uh, I was going to say pogroms, but that's over in Soviet area, uh, you know, lynchings and things like this during Jim Crow South, laws about separate but equal, redlining, like just all sorts of stuff. And um, th there's still instances of racism today for sure, but I'm talking like major systemic intentional oppression. There's been some terrible things, but, but critical race theory, rather than just recognizing that and saying like, hey, let's move towards Martin Luther King. Certainly he's not God. He has many faults, but his dream was, hey, there's these these divisions, but let's move towards reconciliation and unity and harmony. And I have a dream that one day my children aren't going to be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Like, amen. Like that, that's good. And but critical race theory, kind of like Marxism, recognizes some of these these divisions and it actually exacerbates and stokes them to try to get back at the oppressor, but really all it's doing is perpetuating racism. Okay, so that was kind of a short answer. It is wrong. Um, the, the gospel breaks down barriers. The gospel, Jesus came into the world, and certainly primarily the gospel reconciles sinful men to a holy God. There's reconciliation there, but part of the gospel is also a reconciliation one to another. And critical race theory, the problem is it makes some valid observations, 
but then it actually doubles down on the badness in an attempt to like get at people. Vengeance is the Lord's and don't double down this badness. Like let's pursue what, what leads to peace and unity. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot that's wrong with critical race theory. I did preach maybe a series of three sermons. I'm, I'm a pastor at a local church for those who are listening and didn't know that. And in August, I, I preached on um, groups and identity. I preached on a biblical understanding of justice and one other topic that were really speaking to issues involved in this conversation of critical theory and critical race theory specifically. I, I think it was helpful. For example, with justice, one of the things is it the word justice is popular right now, but it's not being used in a biblical way. And so just even realizing that some of the, the language that's used in critical theory, you might be like, well, that sounds Christian. I'm like, well, yeah, justice is Christian. We should want justice. But what does justice mean? Is it actually biblical the way it's being used? Um, similarly, sure, certainly we all have like, you know, groups we might identify with at, at some level, but the gospel really, um, it says that there's something very communal and corporate about the gospel, but it is, it is intensely personal. Um, I, I looked at one, one passage in Mark chapter one. Some centurions come to John the Baptist and they're repentant and they ask what they should do. And John just talks about not abusing people and being fair, uh, same thing with tax collectors. And then he speaks to a, a, a bunch of the children of Israel and he says, hey, if you don't repent and basically embrace the Messiah who's coming uh, in, in a nutshell, God will, God could bring, you know, use the, the rocks to worship him. Like there's a, just because you're part of the oppressed group in that context doesn't mean you get a free pass. And just because you're part of the oppressor group doesn't mean that there's no way for you to repent and for you to start pursuing peace and good. Um, and, and critical theory really seems to omit that. Okay. For the sake of time, moving on. Is there a biblical foundation for righteous pursuit of constitutional rights or is working to uphold the Constitution purely a privileged and logical move by those who value freedoms? To play devil's advocate, is there a biblical argument against just rolling over when our rights are trampled? Hmm, okay. Biblical foundation. Uh, certainly there's no Bible verse where you're like, you know, First Hezekiah 17.2, um, Take action in your civil government to protect personal liberties. You know, there, there isn't that, obviously. And, and you know that, questioner. I know that. I'm not uh, trying to in any way belittle. It's a great question. Um, and part of what I'm saying is it's not simple because there's not that. Um, but what there is is certainly a call to... Um, a call to be engaged, you know, part of what we see in Proverbs, part of the, the blessing of healthy community engagement is we have a place at the city gates and the city gates were where community decisions were being made. There's not, you know, it, it's a good thing to be, to be engaged politically and to be helping to, to influence and to bring truth and wisdom to various decisions that are happening. And certainly I think a, a, a government that respects liberty and allows people to worship and to speak freely and to think through ideas and like these are good things and I I, I think yeah let, let's let's have men and women of God contributing to those conversations and and helping to uphold these these rights and these liberties we enjoy something really special America is not perfect and it's actually I could go on for an hour about problems in America both historical and present but wow what 
within the, the history of humanity, what, what peace, what liberty, what prosperity, um, we really have something, huge blessings. Um, some other pr- biblical principles that might shed light on this, uh, certainly we have a responsibility to our fellow man to love our neighbors. And when we have an opportunity the way we do in the United States to participate in civil government, uh, it, it doesn't mean that like if you don't vote, you're in sin, or if you don't lobby on a particular bill, you're in sin. But certainly it means often when we have opportunities to uh, to exercise some political activism or a vote or a conversation, we're going to use this for the good of our neighbors. Um, certainly also we're going to want to provide for and protect our posterity. Um, you know, in Proverbs, it talks about a wise man saving up a treasure for his children's children. And that's specifically talking about some financial assets. But the principle is you're, you're thinking ahead. You're thinking about the future and you're not just serving yourself. And, and, you know, there, there are moments to be like a, you know, to, to be to look exactly like Jesus right before the crucifixion, where you're just silent as people are falsely accusing. There are moments for that. Um, I've been in moments like that where I'm like, I, I don't think defending myself is helpful right now. I'm just gonna take it in with and, and be silent. Um, that's what's most loving to this person, to the people around me, to our posterity. But there are definitely moments, I think it's pretty obvious, where you're like, you know what? No, actually, the, the, the thing that's going to be most helpful, the, the, the way I'm going to best love the people around me is to take that seat by the city gates, is to take the opportunities. We have lots of, in fact, our constitution in the United States at some level, um, it doesn't just give us opportunity to be engaged. It demands an engaged citizenry. Uh, the United States would, at, at some level, the, the way our government is intended to function would just fall apart, would collapse if citizens were all disengaged. Um, and so, yeah, uh, there certainly is some ba- biblical foundation for a righteous pursuit of constitutional rights. Now, it can very easily become an idol. <clears throat> I think uh, whew, so many things can become an idol, right? And, and often it's, for in the Christian's life, it's good things that can become an idol. Because you know, oh yeah, this is good. I'm, I'm, but I, that's where it's really important to be honest before the Lord. Say, Lord... Give me, give me wisdom. Show, show me if there's something impure in my desires and and in my intentions. Uh, why am I engaged in this? Am I just reacting out of, you know? There's a difference between selfish defense and self-defense. And I do think that there's a tendency in in the the sin nature that we carry to engage in selfish defense. I. I would posit that there is a way, and for the sake of staying on scope, I'm not going to get into it right now, but I would posit there is a way biblically to, with love for the Lord, love for your neighbors, love for the person attacking you, there's a way to engage in self-defense, but not selfish defense. I, I think the sense of like, this is my property, get off or I'm going to shoot you. Like that's just selfish. That is, it's, it's, it's bullish. It's short-sighted. It's not loving to anybody. It's just blah. And what's sad is that's been in my heart at times. That's, there are too many Christians who have that, that sense of, I got constitutional rights. And it's just, it's just selfishness. It's gross. Uh, but certainly there is a way 
out of, out of love for the Lord, out of love for the people around us to engage in political activism and to vote and to, to try to preserve some of the wonderful blessings we have and even improve where things still aren't perfect. Okay, continuing on. Um, Jamie, hi, name of friend. Thank you for writing in. I uh, hope you're doing well. I recently stumbled on your podcast and listened to the election episode. I just wanted to drop you a note to encourage you to keep it up. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate appreciate your approach. Boy, do we ever need a thoughtful, bold Christian voice at this time. I've been working as a speechwriter in the Trump administration this past year, and I've wrestled myself with a lot of what you've discussed. Um, have you been following Sean Fucht? Uh, I don't actually know how to say his name. <laughs> Let us worship movement. I attended a rally in DC the night before ACB got confirmed. So powerful. Awesome. Hey, great. I'm so glad to hear that you're, you're listening. I know I, I, I've talked to you recently. It's fun, fun to engage with people all over in different spheres. And it, you've been uh, doing some great stuff in the administration itself. So thank you. Um, I've, I've heard of Sean's movement, but I'm not directly familiar. Uh, I know certainly what you say here is is a, a great uh, commendation to him in the movement. I'm a big fan of gathering to worship Jesus. So amen. Um, you know, it, it's it's odd. I live in the North Country, Northern New York. And I think both because of geography, but also because I tend to have a little bit of like an out of sight, out of mind. I just don't particularly closely follow movements like that. Um, and we're too kind of, we're too remote of an area for Sean to come up here most likely. Uh, so I'm not directly from afar. I'm a fan, but I don't know enough details to say much, but I am glad, you know, one of the encouraging things about this is uh, this should not be revelatory and it's not, it's not like new information, but I remember the first time I went overseas, uh, to do some ministry. I was in high school. I went to Turkey and, and since then I've had the, the privilege to go to China and Armenia and, and Spain and, and some other places. And it's, uh, you know, when you worship with Christians in a totally different place, in another language, it's mind-boggling because we know that there are Christians around the globe, that there have been Christians throughout the ages. But it's still kind of like, wow, God's God's at work somewhere else. And uh, certainly I know that well at this point, and, I, and I've had the, the privilege of, of seeing it firsthand, God at work in many places, but this is just an encouraging reminder that in a, in a difficult year for most of us in a variety of ways, the Lord is at work. And there are men and women who are, are living for Jesus, who are worshiping Jesus, who are following the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's just exciting and encouraging. And so thanks for writing in. Uh, I am freshly encouraged. Another question, as followers of Jesus, how might we balance our biblical call of submission to governing authorities with standing against potential civil government overreach? On a possibly related and more specific example, is speeding 56 in a 55 mile per hour zone dishonoring the government and therefore going against God's call? How do we marry good citizenry with personal freedom? Hmm, how might we balance our biblical call of submission to governing authorities with standing against potential civil government overreach? Well, if somebody knew the definitive answer on that one, please, <laughs> I would love to know if somebody did. Um, the million dollar question for those, for many in America right now, 
So let me divide this into two. Your example about speeding, I've actually thought about speeding a lot, but let's let's first biblical call, and that that is a call. Romans thirteen one, First um, Peter two. We're called to to submit to and honor and obey those in civil authority. Um, you know, all, all sorts of authorities. God has worked through structures of delegated authority, and we're called to to honor those those structures and people in those positions. So how do we balance that? as followers of Jesus, with standing against potential civil government overreach. Um, a, a few thoughts. And this will be somewhat cursory because I am just going through a number of questions without any preparation or forethought. So one is you can make appeals. You can honor an authority and uh, obey something, but also make an appeal. Uh, for example, a couple of years ago, the, the church I minister with, um, we were in a situation where we bought a property for the purpose of public worship, and the civil authorities said we couldn't worship in it. And um, in that situation, long story short, I think we would have, we, we were, it would have been morally fine for us to simply use the space to worship. However, we didn't do that. In that case, what we did was we said, okay, we won't, but we're going to make an appeal. Um, we appealed very directly to them in a few different ways. And then we, we recognized that here in the United States, um, certainly the village has authority, but the village is also under authority. And so we made an appeal to a higher civil authority. We ended up in federal court and the judge handed down a preliminary injunction that was very thorough and uh, telling of the fact that his final judgment was likely going to be in our favor, the church's favor. And so the village quickly settled after that. And that was an example of um, we honored all the authorities we engaged with and we, but we made an appeal. Uh, You see a biblical appeal being modeled by Daniel and his friends, uh, I can't remember their Hebrew names. Azariah is one of them, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. In Daniel chapter one, they're they're honoring the people over them, the 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 eunuch, but they make an appeal, like, "Hey, can we try this out?" And so, one way biblically, and this includes in a relationship with parents, with uh, church elders, with in various spheres, your boss at work, where you have somebody over you, you can honor them and make an appeal. Um, there are also times where it may be the case that you honor someone and disobey them. Um, You know, if you're an 18-year-old with unsaved parents who've said they absolutely oppose you going to Turkey on a mission trip, um, I think that's something you should, as you honor your parents, you should factor that in. And I would actually strongly encourage, if there's not like a specific sense of the Lord wants me to go to Turkey, I'd maybe even suggest that 18 year old, yeah, you're an adult, but you're a young adult. And these people in your life that God's placed there to help, you know, guide you and give you wisdom, they're really opposed to this. Definitely factor that in strongly and maybe don't even go. However, it could be that there's a strong sense of, wow, this has been a burden on my heart for years. There's an opportunity. This is the leading of the Lord. And there is a way to say, mom and dad, I honor you. I love you. I respect you. I'm so thankful that you've shared with me your input. Um, 
I do feel in this case I need to go. And so I'm going to go, uh, but, but I want you to continue to share with me and give me input. I'm not, I'm not dishonoring you in this. I'm honoring you and disregarding this particular piece of advice. Um, so there is a way to even do that. Uh, I have some other thoughts, but for now I'm going to move on. Hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Okay. You mentioned speeding specifically. I've thought about this. I think the call to, to honor and obey civil governments is a serious one. There have been seasons in my life where I went 55 or whatever the speed limit was. Cause I was like, I don't want to, I want to, I want to honor the Lord by honoring the authorities he's placed in my life. Now, what I've decided personally, but please, if you feel like you need to go 55 on the dot or slower or 30 or 45, whatever the speed limit is, please do that as unto the Lord. But, but here's where I've personally gone just to give you a little insight into my processing. My conclusion after several years of driving now is that uh, the posted speed limit is not the same as the speed limit and that I suspect, I'm not actually 100%, but I'm pretty sure that when the DOT, when engineers are designing roads, et cetera, they're really designing them anticipating not simply that people will speed once in a while, but anticipating that the speed limit, like the, the average speed is going to be five over. Um, I suspect most police officers, in fact, when there's like a police officer right behind me, I don't drive 55 on the dot uh, for two reasons. One is because I don't think I need to, because I think the speed limit's more like 60. But secondly, <laughs> like that police officer is a human being too. They don't want to go like slower than the speed limit. So I drive the speed limit, which is around 60, 62. Um, now, if that's not actually the speed limit and I get pulled over for ticking, I will humbly um, honor that because I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be rebellious or flout rules, but I actually suspect that the speed limit really isn't 55 miles per hour. That's, so that's kind of why currently I actually do go over 55. Um, and I do so even when there's an officer behind me, I do so because I think I'm honoring the civil government and because I'm trying to be respectful to a fellow human being who's behind me and doesn't want to be driving five below the speed limit. Um, so that's kind of my current position, but if you feel like you need to drive 55 on the dot and that's, that's what honoring civil government means, then please do that because we are called to honor our civil authorities. Um, I, my personal take is that I am honoring them by driving five over and, and not just honoring them in a generic sense, but I'm honoring the, the police officer who's right behind me who also wants to drive the speed limit, which is not 55. That's, that's kind of what, what I suspect. Continuing on, let's see, what time is it? Oh, we got a few more minutes. Why did God not accept Cain's sacrifice? Hmm, good question. Let me pull up this passage. So this should be, ooh, I think it's the beginning of Genesis 4 here. Let's see. God, the man was intimate with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. Da, da, da. Hmm, okay. So in the course of time, this is verse 3 of Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord, re the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do what is right, 
If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Um, okay, so what's clear in this passage is that God did not accept Cain's offering and that Cain's response was sinful. What isn't clear in this passage is why exactly God didn't accept Cain's offering. So two thoughts. First one would be focused on the outward aspects, and the second one is inward. Firstly, on the outward, Abel presented an offering, an animal from his flock. Abel presented an offering from the, the, some produce. Uh, oh, by the way, it says in verse two, now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, Cain worked the ground. Now, outwardly, if, if they had the exact same inward posture towards the Lord, I think this story would work out differently. But let's just, for the sake of th this first aspect, let's look at outward only. Is there any way that Cain and Abel would know that Abel's was appropriate and Cain's wasn't? Well, in this passage right here, there isn't a clear indication of that. But what we do see in the middle to the end of Genesis 3, after the, the fall of Adam and Eve, actually towards the end, it says that after they sinned, it says the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, it's somewhat in passing, but man, in Genesis, especially the first few chapters here, it, it's kind of the first instance of many things. And what you see here is they fall into sin and they, they recognize their nakedness and they hide from God. But here it says that the Lord made them clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. And clothing from skins, well, what had to happen for that? An animal had to die, right? And so like what you see is that there was an animal who has died and as a result of that, there was an ability for Adam and Eve to be clothed where they had realized from their sin that they were naked. And so something had been exposed. And so part of the clothing them in this was the shedding of blood. And, and what you see is throughout the Old Testament, there's this pattern of sacrifices, of, of ceremonial sacrifices pointing to the reality that Jesus's blood will be shed one day for the remission of sins. And right here, even in Genesis 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, you see the shedding of innocent blood that they might be clothed because sin had revealed their nakedness. And so it's likely, it doesn't actually say this, it doesn't detail this, but it is likely that Adam and Eve understood this proto-Euangelion, this first gospel articulation that blood needed to be shed for sin and that that would have been passed on to their children, Cain and Abel. But years later, Cain was like, this is what I have. This is going to be good enough for God. And so it's very possible he actually rejected God's teaching and his call for them to make offerings of the sh shed blood of animals. Okay. But secondly, let's assume that they both, they, they didn't know that or that they both offered the same thing. It could have even said Cain offered a sheep and God didn't accept it. And Abel offered one and God did. And then Cain gets furious. And what I'd say is, God doesn't just look at our outward actions. He looks at the heart. And so what's clear from this story is their hearts were in different places. Whether Cain was knowingly presenting the wrong sacrifice or unintentionally presenting the wrong sacrifice or even presenting the right sacrifice, what's clear in this story is that Cain was not presenting it with the right 
motive, and intent. And God knows the heart and judges the heart, and he rejects one and receives the other. So that's in a nutshell what I would say. That that passage itself doesn't exactly say why, but it's clear that God doesn't accept it. And most likely it wasn't the right sacrifice, but clearly Cain wasn't offering it with the right heart motivation. Because if it had been the wrong sacrifice with the right heart motivation, when God rejected it, Cain would have rent his clothing and been like, Lord, like, give me wisdom. Like, what did I miss? What have I, if his, if his heart posture was actually worshipful to the Lord and submitted to the Lord, uh, his response would not have been fury and despondence. It would have been humble repentance. And I'm confident, I know the Lord, I know his goodness and his faithfulness, his mercies that are new every morning. He would have met Cain in that if his heart was in the right place. Okay, so one last question. What do you think about online dating? Online dating. I have, uh, in a nutshell, I think the idea is really interesting. Um, The marriage is a good thing. Uh, Marriage is God's design. He created us male and female. He, He, we... Not every one of us needs to get married for this statement to be true. God's design for us is marriage. Um, It's clear that not every one of us gets married for a few obvious reasons. One is the Apostle Paul was single. Jesus was unmarried during his ministry. Clearly, we can engage in ministry and and do much that God has for us without being married. Um, But what's clear, talking about Genesis, is God designed us male and female for the purpose of marriage. Um, Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, um, Paul both uh, in some ways encourages singleness, but in other ways actually encourages marriage. Uh, in 1 Timothy, he encourages marriage. Like there's, marriage is a good thing. And, you know, over the years, people have found spouses various ways, depending on the specific context, uh, cultural and just socioeconomic, geographic, etc. Um, you know, often back in the day, you'd marry somebody you went to grade school with. Um, but there also is some precedence for, well, in, in Genesis, what is it? Chapter maybe 22, 23, 24, somewhere in that range. Uh, Abraham, uh, sends a a servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac, right? Like there's, there's lots, when we talk about like pursuing someone for, uh, for a good marriage. And, and here's the key. I think online dating could be great as long as it's a, hey, I desire a good thing, marriage, and I desire to do it the right way, to not compromise, to marry somebody who loves Jesus, who has a, a kingdom vision for church and family and marriage. And hey, uh, the people that I know in my life right now, there's not somebody that fits that who's uh, attractive to me or in, or I'm attracted to them or like just fits. We're not in the same place in life, maybe different seasons, but I'm interested in this. I'd be like, Hey, go for it. You know, I, I know multiple people who've connected online. Uh, just met somebody in the past few weeks, actually, who met on, online and they have a great relationship. Um, uh, one of my siblings, like the initial connection was via email with, a, with a spouse, like, that's a really cool, it's, you know, those stories are always like, that's a little odd, but hey, like props to people who are saying, I'm interested in marriage, but I'm not interested in making huge compromises. And when I say compromise, I think we should actually be willing to compromise on many things when it comes to marriage. Compromise on, you know, if you have some sort of vision for like your 
future spouse's favorite color or favorite cuisine or height or athleticism or musicality. Like, I don't know. I, I would say be, be pretty flexible on a lot of those things, but we should, there should be no interest or no compromise when it comes to, they love the Lord. They're submitted to, uh, to, to the Bible and to, to biblical counsel. Um, they value local church. There, there's healthy set of priorities in their life. Like don't compromise on those things too often. We don't compromise on the, yeah, we both love sports and we do compromise on, do we both really love Jesus? And that is just, I could go into another whole, I, I bet you understand that though. So I'm not going to get into that right now, but when it comes to online dating, yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's a tool to connect with people who, who love Jesus, who have kingdom vision, then amen, like go for it. Now, I do think online dating could easily become a distraction where God has you in a season right now. And all of a sudden, I don't have any experience with online dating, so I don't know exactly how it works, but it's possible, you know, you're getting hits with people or whatever, like every day. And it could be become all of a sudden an obsession or a fixation for weeks or even months or even years, kind of like checking out the latest profile nudge or view, or I don't even know what they do to like connect with people or, you know, swipe and write. Like, I don't know. So, so it could vary. I could well imagine it being a useful tool for a great marriage. I could also really, 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 really easily imagine it being a massive distraction. Um, also I, I could imagine the online nature causing us to unintentionally, uh, prioritize things like resume and looks, which I'm not saying, you know, resume and looks are unimportant. Certainly it's, it's okay to be attracted to the person you're going to marry and to, to feel like, you know, they have some sort of resume, they're doing something with their life, but it could be really easy to put a lot of weight on things like looks and resume via online dating, uh, an un, unhealthy amount. And so I think having some IRL friends and real life friends who are holding you accountable, making sure you don't become obsessed, um, making sure you still are like holding healthy values as you're looking to connect with people, kind of keeping your, um, yeah, I'm going to stop talking so I don't ramble, but hopefully those are some help. I'm not opposed to online dating per se. I think it could be a great tool. I also could easily envision some potential, uh, difficulties with it. So use it well, use it for the glory of God. If it serves you, amen. If it's becoming unhelpful or distracting, ditch it. Uh, cool beans. Hey, um, I still have some questions that have come in that I, I don't think I've gotten to, but I, I just wanted to go through a number. These are fun. I love hearing from you guys. If you have other thoughts or questions, um, just could be topics. It could be very specific questions. Anything you think might be interesting to discuss in the podcast at times, feel free. Uh, you can message me directly at my personal contact areas, but it's easy for me to keep it organized if you text those ideas to a phone number I set up for the podcast. And that number is 315-566-0056. That is 315-566-0056. Have a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Peace.